Hey everybody, you are listening to episodes 11, part 1 and part 2 that are on Spotify and Apple Music and all my regular podcasts. There's no video with this one, but I wanted to upload these episodes because these are two of the most powerful ones that I've done. These episodes are a conversation with my friend Jennifer, who as a teenager was trafficked. Jennifer was miraculously able able to get out of that situation, and her life was transformed afterwards. And she goes through the whole process before it happened, what exactly happened to her, and then what God did after she was released. It's a miracle that she's alive, honestly. I mean, her story's amazing. So I hope you enjoy listening. I hope you are made aware and maybe will pay attention to the people around you and the the kids around you who need protection and need help, the kids that don't have someone looking after them. And I hope you'll share this with anyone that you think might benefit from hearing from it. Thank you for listening. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. Thank you so much for being here and for being willing to share your story with us. I know when I heard your story several years ago, I mean, I was shocked because what you've been through is something that we think about in other countries. We think about in other places. You don't think about it being next door or in your town or whatever. And I think when you shared your story and and even when this happened, it wasn't something that was talked about a lot. And so I want you to tell me your story, what you've been through. I think it just could be such an encouragement to parents out there, it definitely a reality check for parents to kind of pay attention and, and just be reminded of the evil that is out there in the world, unfortunately. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I want to preface by saying that my story is obviously my story. It's unique to me and my situation, but right. having worked in the industry volunteering for so many years there, it, it just touches such a wide array of different backgrounds. And so it's not just my story, you know, and my unique situation, but there are so many. And so, uh, you know, really the first thing I wanted to ask about before we get into that is what your family life was like when you got into this situation. Yeah. So I grew up and this is the kind of what I was prefacing before about my very unique situation. So I grew up and from birth, my mother fell ill when I was 10 months old. So she has a few neurological diseases that actually caused her body to be paralyzed for quite a few years while the doctors were trying to kind of figure out how to write the path for her neurological health. And in the meantime of that, that meant that she was out of work, um, home full-time and bed full-time. And my dad was the breadwinner. And he, they had six kids, so I have five brothers and sisters. So that meant that a lot of food to be put on the table. And from a, a young age, my father... He dealt with some addiction issues. So on top of trying to be the breadwinner, he was also trying to feed a habit. And so we ended up being homeless 
quite a few times from, uh, I mean, even before I was born, my family has stories of homelessness and different things surrounding that. But especially after my mother couldn't work anymore and fell ill, I mean, we lived on, I can remember living on the side of a lake in a tent for a while and going to live with a random family friend for a while. I mean, there were just time after time. So there were a lot of things like that growing up. We did that until I was in about first grade and we finally settled Uh for three years, a three year span. We finally settled in Mesquite and I went to school. Life was very normal for as much as I could really have it. I did things like drill team, sign language. Um, I had lots of friends. I mean, it was all like the most normal life that they could possibly give me. Um, We went to church regularly during that time. And it really was a time that I know my parents were trying to heal and they were trying to heal the relationship that each of us had. And then that three year span after that, my father passed away suddenly when we were nine, when I was nine years old. And that kind of changed the trajectory from that point to where normal wasn't going to really be a thing for me anymore. And really for any of us, six kids. And from there, my mother and I moved in with my oldest brother who had himself a porn addiction, just to be frank. And he's really dealt with that and grown so much from that. But the uh, availability of that to me as a nine-year-old really changed my perspective. And I was still so innocent at that point that when I took all of this in, it really changed how I saw the world. And pornography, especially at such a young age, it just causes your brain to misfire in so many ways it causes your your body to react in certain ways and we're really never old enough to be prepared for that kind of thing it's a very unhealthy thing right but especially at that young of an age it really caused such a a view that I had of myself and others and such a shift kind of a paradigm shift the other thing that happened during that time was that because I was living with this older brother who was working and he wasn't a father, he was a brother. So it was me, my mom and my brother, and I really had free reign. So I, we moved into a, a lower income apartment complex and I made new friends there, but the friends I made there uh, were already doing things like smoking weed and smoking cigarettes and and, you know, stealing their parents' beer or alcohol counter things. And so really, I mean, wildly, and I think back now, and uh, I have a daughter who's about that age, I was already being introduced to those things at the age of nine. Right. And so this really desensitized certain areas of my life, primed me for other areas. And this was just a kind of a a habit path or a trail kind of habitual thing that happened. Now, one thing I, I had been introduced to like pornography, but I had never been introduced to like quote the real thing. I was still 
detached from the reality of what it was because it, it was all a show to me and it wasn't a reality. Yeah. And that really was all the way up until my high school days. And this is where I want to get into kind of the realities of what happened and how easily it is to kind of, I guess, affect other people. Because when I was in high school, my very first year, my mother and I had finally, and now she's disabled and like deemed disabled by government, all of that. So she finally got approved for some housing. And so she and I moved back to Mesquite where she got an apartment and I was able to stay at the same high school all four years of high school, which was great. However, going into that high school, I didn't know anyone. I was brand new. And so I I was really just trying to find a place to fit in there. So my very first year, I went in and I met a girl and I'll just, I'll call her Mia for all purposes. And she was, so I was a freshman. That means I was 14 years old. She was actually older. She was 19 years old and she was pregnant and she was in my freshman geometry class or geography. I'm sorry. Yeah. My freshman geography class. And she and I connected. I mean, it was like an instant spark of connection. I mean, I've had that with friends in my life, even as an adult, where you just connect with someone and it's like, oh, sure. Like an instant, you can just chat and chat, you know, like that type of connection. And that really was the type of connection that was there was like this instant thing. And she and I just Mm -hmm. kind of butted up. She was new. I was new. She was trying to get classes done so that she could officially graduate. She had been through a lot of life. So had I. And the relationship she was just building with me was like something that I craved so much for someone to be so interested in me and care so deeply about the things that were happening because I had jumped from place to place and moved. I hadn't gone to the same school for a single semester my entire career of school since third grade. So to have someone to actually connect with in that way was something that was very special in that time. Yeah. And so she had invited me out. She and I had been friends for a few weeks and she invited me to go out with her to her dad's house. And her dad lived in Fort Worth. And so she and I Mm -hmm. hopped on the bus and uh, public transportation, which is how I got everywhere during this time. And we headed out to, you know, the train. There's a lot of different things you have to do to get from Dallas to Fort Worth through public transportation, but we finally made it there. And we go to this Mm -hmm. neighborhood with these amazingly beautiful homes. I had never seen homes um, this big in my lifetime. And so I was like, yeah, very much kind of in amazement and awe. And so we go to this house, we get things together. And then she's like, okay, come on, we're going to go to a friend's house. And I was like, okay. And we went another beautiful house. Again, I was just like, where, you know, like, where are we? This is insane. And we knock on the door and opening the door. It was a woman who opened the door 
And the house had tons of children in it, tons of women. And it was just like chaos, like just people running and getting ready and doing this and doing that. And so we go inside and out walks this very large gentleman. I I probably am being too nice with that term. Um, This very large man (laughs) walks out and she says, hey, Bubba, this is Jennifer and she needs to make some money. And I was like, very taken aback. I didn't know. I really had no idea what was happening. I didn't know what the word prostitution was. I didn't know. uh, I really, the only thing I knew of was a stripper, right? From TV shows and different things. Like that's all I knew. And so he comes out, he says, okay, well, what would she rather do? Would she rather dance or would she rather go to the massage parlor? And they look at me and I'm like, well, if I'm going to do something, I guess I would rather dance, you know? And so when they said that, were you, were you really thinking dancing? Like, were you, did you have any idea what was actually going on? So I started getting an idea when they, when I saw the women and how they were dressed because they were all dressed in lingerie and they were like putting robes on Mm -hmm. and kind of overclothes on Um, and so I kind of started getting an idea of what was going on, but I really had no clue of the expectation of me. And so he left the room and he was gone for a few minutes. He said, you know, he needed to call a, a friend and see if they could get me into this club. And which side note, there are lots of minor children who do go to these clubs and dance and are used for this purpose. And it is a very real thing. Gosh. But yeah, they couldn't get me in was what he said. I, I'm sure the plan all along was to send me to this brothel slash massage parlor. And so right. they said, okay, well, they don't have room here. You're going to go to this uh, massage parlor and you're going to work there. And I was just saying, I was like, um, okay, like, I don't know, you know, I don't have, and this is, here you go, the mind of a 14 year old. I don't have anything to wear. I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. And so they're like, oh, we'll give you clothes. Right. And so here they bring out these clothes for me, the robe for me. They get me packed up. He takes my backpack, which has my little flip phone, cell phone in it, but it's my only line of communication outside of there. He takes that. And I get in the car with these two female strangers and we are on our way. And while we're on our way to this massage parlor, they give me uh, a, it's a blunt or a joint, which is weed to smoke, but it had been laced with something, something else was in it because I just remember I did. Listen, I smoked a lot of things in my childhood. I'm not proud of it, but <laughs> I did. And this was not normal. And it, it instantly, like, I just felt very detached from the world around me. And I had never done any hard drugs. Yeah. Um, so I felt very detached. And they gave me, like, this energy journey. So it was almost yeah. like they were, I mean, I'm sure they knew what they were doing in that aspect. Oh, yes. And so they gave me that and an energy drink. And it was like this weird heart racing, but calm and detached feeling. And then we pull up to a donut shop and it's just a standalone little bakery donut shop. 
And we pull around yeah. to the back. I was so confused by that fact that we were at a donut shop. Yeah. And we go in through this back door. And the woman, um, owner of this place, kind of ushered us into the dressing room area. And there were just probably six rooms plus like a dressing room. And in this building was, uh, so it was like a normal storefront, right? Uh, that you would see at any donut mm -hmm. shop. There's the window with a clear window with all of the donuts in it. There's a little door that lifts up so you can walk in the back. And what would happen is somebody would come in and that would cause like a doorbell alarm to go off. And when that alarm or that bell would go off, all of the people, which there were multiple transgender people and multiple women in this place, everyone would was expected to parade up front and stand in a line where this customer would then choose his person. And so the first time that I went up, the person that came in chose me and I was said, no, I was like, I, I can't do this. No. And so they had him choose someone else. And then the second time bell went off, we went up there and I said, no. And then the third time I said, no again. And I was, I mean, I was terrified. I, and well, yeah. so the girls that I'd come with pulled me after that last time, they pulled me into the back corner and basically they just cornered me and said, the next person that comes in, you're going with, you can't do this anymore. And you know, it, it's, you're going basically. And I felt so intimidated and scared. And right. I just want to point out, I'm 14 years old. I'm underdeveloped. I right. am very, very obviously a child. And not to mention the fact that when we came in here to this place to get ready, I was so out of it that I had one eye of makeup on and the other side of my face had nothing because of how drugged I was. I just couldn't even put anything on. And so yeah. I'm like in this place where the bell rings and the men come in and every single time they've come in, they have picked me first because they can tell that I'm fresh meat and they pick right. me again. And this thing happens where I'm abused and I come, you know, finish this and the door opens up and the two ladies are there standing outside this door and they are saying, you've got to go. And I was like, um, okay. And they said, your mom keeps calling your cell phone and you just, you need to leave. Here's $20. You need to leave. I mean, I remember this the first time you shared your story, but it still just blows me away that they wanted you out. Like how I can't imagine that that happens mm. ever yeah. <laughs> or often that they get these girls in and then they want to get rid of them. It seems like they would do whatever they could. Mm-hmm to keep you there. Do you know oh, I, I mean? do. And in my decade of experience working with girls and actually working on the private investigator side of searching for missing kids who are in these situations, I've never heard another situation yeah. like that. Yeah, I just haven't. It's 
way too easy, especially in the year that it was. It was, uh, it would have been 2006. And so in that time, sure, we mm-hmm. had technology, but nothing like we have today. Um, they could have just tossed my cell right. phone and that would have been that. Absolutely. And nobody knew where I was because of my situation and my mom and the health that she was. I really had free reign to just go and do as I please. Right. So, you know, I, um, it, that really is something. The girl that you went with over there, was she with you at this place at this donut? So she, she wasn't there at the donut shop and basically what it is. And I know this now because of, you know, experience, but she needed a replacement because she could no longer work because now she was so pregnant. She was showing. And so she needed Uh. a replacement. And that was what she was kind of looking for. So the friendship, and this is what I always try to stress to parents, is that, yes, my background and my history is very unique because I came from a life of poverty, a life of a lot of trauma. But the the key thing here is the friendship that was made and the connection that was able to be made. And I see this happening now with technology so much in healthy families where, oh yeah, yes. where yes. the connection gets made and somebody gets comfortable and then they convince them to meet up or to hang out or whatever. And they do. And then, you know, this is why I, I just can't stress enough to people like you will never, you will never wish you gave your child a cell phone a day earlier. And you will never wish you allowed them to get social media a day earlier. You'll never say to yourself, I should have just let them have it at the age of 12. I mean, you'll never say that to yourself. Oh, right. You know, and so I always, I just always say, just wait. It's waiting is always worth it. And being cautious is always worth it. Not being afraid. I never want parents to be afraid. You need to be informed and aware. And that way you can be prepared. And so fear is not something when we make choices out of fear, you know, that just causes us to be reactionary instead of proactive. I have granddaughters and I have nieces. This story is so important, I feel, to share for that very reason, like what you just said, so that people would be aware because it was so easy for you to get pulled into that, you know, just because you had some free reign and it just was very easy. And I know it's, it's, I mean, that was a long time ago. I'm sure it's the same way now. Yeah. I'll share. And I, I want to share a little bit in a minute about kind of coming out of that because I do think it's important, uh-huh. but I I will say as parents, we want to find this balance between being that helicopter parent and being that free range parent, you know, it's like, where's the in between of this? How do I protect my child, but also give them freedom and independence and kind of curate that, that safety in between there. And so I want to say that there is, there's no perfect parent. And if we're all trying to be that perfect parent, I mean, the reality is, is that Unfortunately, it just doesn't exist. And I have to remind myself even of this, you know, often our job is to be prepared, to be aware so that we can make wise decisions. 
but ultimately like there are real things that we can do as parents and there there are ways that we can realistically so tell me yeah give me some suggestions for parents what are things that they can okay do? so a couple of things one thing is from the from the youngest ages when you're changing your child's diaper and if you're past this it's okay i'll get there too but from the youngest ages when you're changing your child's diaper be talking about terms that are real. Like, I'm going to change your diaper. This is, and listen, it's weird. It feels funny whenever you're like, oh, look, you peed. This is your penis. Like, yes, it feels weird, but it's important for your right. child to know anatomically correct names for things. Like, it really is important that we don't give things nicknames because later if if something were to tragically happen it is so important that our that your child knows the correct name for something and is able to place that name on it like it is of the utmost importance yeah so really from a young age but also during that time saying you know just kind of reminding them i'm changing your diaper and I'm going to be quick, but just remember this is our safe zone and our privacy zone and nobody needs to be here. And then as they are growing up, right. kind of those same reminders, hey, why don't you go in your room and close the door? We're going to get dressed in privacy because it's always important that we feel safe when we're getting dressed. You know, very simple things like right. that, that prepare our children to understand privacy and to understand that yeah. they are allowed to have those things and that and then there are other things and I've I've loved this movement where people have said hey don't force your child to give uncle bob a hug you know what i'm saying like don't force right. it say right. would you do you feel like hugging today do you feel like and yeah. i i admire my husband for this but he even says like i just don't let other people's kids sit in my lap. It's just not the best yeah. thing to do because you just want to protect their safety and your own safety. And so things like that, where Absolutely. it's like, you know, being very cautious. I grew up in a time where my dad's, I can remember my dad's friends when I was very young tickling me and I felt so uncomfortable and it was the weirdest thing yeah. and they didn't mean anything by it. Uh, genuinely, but I can remember right. as a child just being like, okay, this is, I, I'm not a fan of this. And so being mindful, like tickle your own kids, but probably not other people's kids. And then the other thing as they get older, when you do decide to give your child access, whether it's a laptop, a cell phone, a tablet, putting a safety, a parent safety app on there that allows you, it basically allows you yes. backdoor entrance into their device where you can go in and see the activity. You can see if they've deleted anything. You can see the conversations. And yeah. this is where as a parent, two things, it's important for you to have the boundary that you're just not going to go into your child's things and, you know, invade their privacy because that's important for us as adults to have privacy and our right. children to have privacy. But two, making your child aware, hey, I have access. I'm going right. to do spot checks. I'm going to look and see what you're doing. You know, so making that very clear and if and when you decide to give that access, making sure that you have that kind of security barrier there. Well, the last thing I was going to say, as parents, to really encourage your children to avoid, even if it makes you the worst parent in the world to them, 
TikTok and Snapchat mm-hmm. are like the apps to avoid at yeah. all costs. I'll just even say in my years of doing the PI private investigator help when I was the helper to a PI, mm-hmm. I have lured many of children out of dangerous situations using those apps which those children were initially lured wow. through those types of apps. So they were lured because your conversation vanishes yeah. and you can tell if someone takes a screenshot in Snapchat specifically. So it's very, very important. Yeah. And I, you know, gosh, these kids have thousands and thousands of people on these apps with them and they don't know, but maybe a hundred of them, they really right. can't know much more than goes to their school. Those are the apps I would just say, be very careful and avoid at all costs. So we gave our daughter a cell phone in junior high, but this was, you know, I don't know what year she was in junior high and it wasn't a, it wasn't a smartphone. I don't even think I had a smartphone Mm -hmm. when we got her a phone. It was a flip phone and it was for her to call when she got done with practice or so many kids now are wanting phones so early. I mean, some of them are getting them very early, which blows my Mm -hmm. mind. It seems like a big deal. It seems like it's special and it's just so dangerous. Yes, absolutely. So dangerous. Let's go back to your story. When you, they said you had to get out and you, uh, your mom kept calling. Tell us what happened. Yeah. So, so they, they had me leave and they, and listen, I will be very frank here. My memory from this, from this moment and how I got home is very blurred. The lines are very blurred because of, you know, the trauma that is there with that and the drugs that I was on in this moment. But I remember coming out, I got my backpack and they brought me to the bus station and it's the middle, it's like 3am at this point. So they brought me to the bus station and that was how I got home was the bus station by myself and I really don't remember much about it because the buses didn't even run. So that means that I I would have had to have slept at the bus station and then gotten up and gone. Wow. Yeah. And so those are those like I said, that memory is very blurred. But what I did get home and I never talked about this. I didn't talk about this happening to me until I was married. And I didn't mm-hmm. have a name for it. I didn't know that I was trafficked. I didn't, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So what did you tell your mom? Well, nothing. I just told her I was out with a friend, you know? Um, and that's kind of the thing is as a teenager, it's expected that our kids are going to just be, you know, like our, I, I have times now where um, I say, Hey, how are you? Fine. You know, and working with youth, I'm like, how was your week? Good. Right. Eh, it was fine. And getting them to open is like opening right. a hard shell something. You know, it's like trying to pry something open to get yes. inside. So, yes. you know, I, I can't, I don't even remember the conversation, but I just know I didn't have to say anything. It was just, uh, I was home and I just, yeah, went on with kind of life. But I wasn't the same after this. And oh, I'm sure your body, when something traumatic happens, your body keeps the score in such a way that it is, it tells a story on its own. How you now react to things, the trajectory that you go down because of these things. 
And so I can remember going back to school and I was so much harder now. Like I felt so much harder and I really fell into this thing where I started fighting at school, uh, physically fighting at school. I was skipping school a lot. I mean, I was not at school more than I was at school. I would get up, Mm. I would walk to the bus station and I would just ride the bus around to wherever I wanted to go. So I really was, I wasn't at school. I, when I was at school, I was fighting or I was being disrespectful to teachers. You know, I really was in such a deep, dark place and it was like, a a light, like just the light turned off, like something just happened. I, you know, look back at this and I'm thankful for the people that the Lord put in my life at this time, because I can look back and there are other kind of things and situations that were happening as well, because as my behavior got worse my relationship with my mom got worse and so she was not physically able to discipline me or to there was no for me I was in such a dark place that I wasn't going to let her tell me what to do I was just going to do and because of that and because of her her neurological illness which led to mental illness This led to the only way she knew how to deal with me was verbal abuse. And so that added on to me acting out. And so it was just this snowball effect of thing after thing. And really what happened was that my, one of my brothers, I'm the youngest of the six children in my family. I was going to ask you that. Yes. Yeah. So one of my older brothers He um, would come and find me and literally Wednesday and Sunday, he would just come and he would pick me up. It didn't matter where I was. I could be high. Like it didn't matter. He would come, he would find me, he would pick me up and he would take me to church with him. And I was so annoyed at him at the beginning (laughs) I really was so annoyed. And he had, the Lord had changed his heart so much and he had been in such a, just a good place. And he also knew, he knew that something wasn't right. And he knew what I had been through, not the trafficking situation, but with losing our dad and our mom being sick and uh, the fact that I was doing drugs and things. He knew those things. And so he had such the, the Lord used him. He would pick me up and his the authority that the lord gave him i just submitted to in that and i am so thankful for that and so he would pick me up and he would bring me to church right. and the church that he brought me to is a little baptist church and they just loved on me so well they never said anything like why are you dressed like that why i dressed like right like i was i dressed in you know very not very modest clothing. And, and so they never questioned those things. And they always spoke the truth in a loving way. Now, fast forward two years in my junior year of high school, I'm still doing all of these things. But I'm also I've now built some relationships with 
these students in this youth group. And so I am kind of known by them as this rough kind of rough and tumble girl. And we mm-hmm. went to, uh, I went to a couple of youth camps with them, a couple of like youth conferences with them. But I remember specifically, we went to one that Louis Giglio was speaking at and yeah, it was, oh, wow. it was called acquire the fire was what it was called. And it was, oh, I yeah. And so we went, it was beautiful. Yeah. Carrie Job was doing worship. Yeah. Louis Giglio was there. I mean, it, it was great. And so I remember wow. Louis Giglio hit one of his, his sessions. He talked about how we can all put on this mask and we just pile on thing after thing. But the reality is none of those things are who God created us to be. And he gave this altar call for us to pull off the mask and give our raw selves to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit just completely wrecked me. And I, you know, gave my life to him completely that day. And I can remember, I'll never forget the feeling of just the weight of carrying all of these things. It was like it just became so much lighter and that moment, I'm forever thankful for, for that and just how the Lord used so many people and so many things to just draw me to him. I can't imagine. Of course, I mean, I only know you as I know you now. So I can't imagine you being this rough <laughs> and, you know, hard person. Like I just, it's hard for me to even picture that because you're just <laughs> so sweet. But it's, it still just blows me away that you were able to walk away from that situation because I know that's not the norm. And I mean, it was just a miracle that you were able to do that. You know, you talked about uh, doing some private investigating work and I know you volunteered for different places that went and and looked for these kids. How did you get involved in that? And and what did that look like for you? So, um, so I got, after I got saved, I kind of went down this, this path now that I was fully sold out for the Lord. And I was like really working on like spiritual healing and all of that. And I met my mm-hmm. husband at, at a, this, we weren't married obviously, but when I, when I met him, he was serving and at this other church that I had visited a few times. And after he and I got married, we had a friend of ours who spoke at the church and her speech was about human trafficking and she talked about it. And when she put a name to the situation, all of these like alarms went off in my head and my body. And I was like, Whoa, that is me. Like that is what happened to me. And so I finally had a name for this thing that was happening So I told my husband what I, what happened and he immediately encouraged me to go to counseling. So I, I did, I got into, it was, it was actually, I got into a sexual abuse recovery group. And during that time I got Mm -hmm. with the friend who, uh, her name is actually Lindsay Speed. She's the director of traffic now and one now. And she was like, Uh Hey, yeah, well, while you're doing that, why don't you just come volunteer with us? And so I went and did outreach ministry with them. And it was just an entry into seeing how this organization loves on these girls and goes out into the community. I mean, it was such a beautiful thing. And they don't do that specific outreach, but 
that organization specifically targets the victims and advocates for them and cares for them in such a beautiful way. And so I'm going through sexual abuse recovery. I had stopped volunteering with Traffic 911 because they stopped doing that specific outreach ministry. And the counselor Mm -hmm. who was leading the abuse recovery group that I was in, she had me stay after and she just told me, hey, I know a woman who is starting an organ or has started a human trafficking organization. Would you mind if I connect you with her? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And so she connected me with uh, Rebecca Jower. She's the founder of Poema and Poema Foundation. Yes. yes. And Rebecca and I, when we met, we connected instantly. Uh, she was such a mama bear and I could see her heart for this ministry as a whole. And so she and I met once a month, sometimes more, but we met once a month with a small group of other volunteers getting Poema off the ground. And I was able to then implement the, uh, with her help, I implemented this outreach program that Traffic 911 had decided to not do anymore. And so I implemented that. And mm-hmm. they've been using that model and they're still using it. I I volunteered with them for about six years. And then, you know, with kids oh, wow. and everything, I just had to slowly kind of detach myself. And I have um, I go and do speaking arrangements and different things now whenever she needs me. But um, but yeah, it's their right. outreach program is still going on. It's grown. I mean, whenever I started it, we had three campuses and I think they have like 12 or 15 now. I mean, it's all over. It's multi-state. Wow, it's awesome. It's a wonderful thing that they've been able to do. But more, not more importantly, but just something that touches my heart so much that they do is they have a home for women where they uh, are bringing in Mm-hmm. victims and helping them learn how to navigate life and be productive members of society and helping them go through counseling and get jobs and wow. all kinds of things. And so they have a house. Yeah. I think that they are working on building another house. And I know that there are some things uh, Rebecca has as far as vision goes. I just am not sure how much she shared. And while yeah. I was working doing the outreach program there, um, I got connected with the founder of for the one foundation and for the one foundation is a group Mm -hmm. of private investigators, licensed private investigators and other volunteers who work together to actually get missing kid. So someone's teenager goes missing. If it's a runaway case, then they will take it and help locate that teen. Hopefully before they get into a nasty situation. Mm -hmm. So I got connected with them and I was able to, um, I I never got my PI license. So I always assisted the PIs, but I am very good at social media. And because I had, I knew the lingo, I knew Mm -hmm. how the kids talked. I knew what all of the words meant. So I really ended up just becoming the training coordinator over all of that. And anytime we would connect with a youth that was missing, it was like, 
hey, Jennifer, how do we talk to this person without them knowing that we're a 40-something-year-old human? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so connecting with right. them and really, you know, they do such amazing work in locating missing kids um, and getting them into safety before they have to go. Because really, here's the thing. The statistic is staggering. When a child runs away from home, they have about 48 hours before they are going to um, statistically like meet a pimp. And so that 48 hour window is what for the one foundation really tries to work on. And it doesn't always happen. It's sometimes it it takes longer. And there are many times where, um, and I'll just tell a quick story if you don't mind. I can specifically remember a time when we were looking for a girl and she had kind of been off the radar, but I got her to respond to my account on Snapchat. And I talked to her for a while and I asked her, you know, if I could meet up with her. And her response was, if you bring me food. And then she proceeded to tell me she hadn't eaten in days and she just wanted some chicken nuggets from McDonald's. And so we were able to connect with her. We did, we did actually bring her food, but we connected law enforcement straight to her and got her picked up in the home that she was at. It was just a terrible situation. And so our PIs were able to be on the scene at the time with the police officers and intercept, you know, this whole kind of relationship. Our law enforcement's gotten so much better, but for such a long time, law enforcement didn't know what to do with these cases. And so they just, you see a teenager running away and your first instinct is to shame them and think, oh, well, there you go. Just another kid disobeying their parents. But there's just so much more to these stories and these situations. And the brain of, of children is not developed enough to be able to make decisions like our brains are. So as a mom, you know, you, like you said, you have a daughter that is getting close to the age that you were when your life kind of started spinning out Mm -hmm. of control, I guess. Have you talked to her about any of this or how do you talk to her about, you know, without scaring her? It's like you said, there's got to be a balance between being overprotective and then wanting to to keep her safe. How do you talk to yeah, her about that? You know, that? the thing I love about Christianity and the Bible is that God lays out these situations and scenarios for us in the Bible to where we can use real life and connect it to this sin because the reality is there's no new sin under the sun. It just looks different in different times. And right. so we, re- I really, yeah. I always, we do our daily devotionals, our daily, we have, I mean, this girl is so analytical and very curious and I'm like, I love it. But also there are times where I'm like, okay, we've got to slow down a little bit. But you know, the one thing with her yeah. is, and my second, my middle child is getting to this point. He is five and turning six next month. With my first, you know, Mm -hmm. she is, aside from all the tips I gave earlier about body and conversations and all of that, you know, we talk about things like, you know, how our bodies react to things. We talk about the reality of different 
basically everyone doesn't have our best interest at heart. And the reality is, unless we know Jesus, we are turned inward and we're selfish, you know? And even sometimes when we know him, we still have a tendency to turn inward and be selfish. And that is our human nature. It's our sin nature, right? Like we have a tendency to turn inward and look at what is going to be best fitting for me in this moment. And so we talk about those things in a way Mm -hmm. that's relatable to her. And I think that's really helped to be able to point to, you know, look at these stories in the Bible and let's look at these real life kind of stories that are happening And she knows the work that I've done. So, I I mean, I think that's helpful. Now, she Mm -hmm. doesn't know, like, she doesn't know what sex is. And she doesn't know, like, yeah, it's very much age appropriate, right? Like, the conversations are very much age appropriate. Right, right. I just have such a desire for her to be kind of mentally prepared. And, you know, and I think that's every parent's desire. It's like, we don't want our kids to be surprised by something or taken and we just want that at least communication door to be open where they always feel comfortable coming and asking questions even if that answer is I don't even know the answer to that but let's chat about it at dinner tomorrow you know give me some time to research this right right well I am so thankful that you were able to get out of that situation Mm -hmm. so quickly and I'm really thankful that you have been able to do the work that you have to help because I, I can't imagine if my daughter had left or had been taken or whatever, like I would be Mm -hmm. so overwhelmed with even knowing what to do. Like I would feel paralyzed as far as I don't even know where to begin. You know what I mean? I'm thankful that you are, have been willing to help parents and help these ministries because you have such insight into that world. And now, you know, you've heard about the massage parlors and, you know, what they really are, but I never thought I about a donut shop. <laughs> I never thought about, no, it's I know. Funny. it's I'm ironic laughing right? about it, but it just yeah. blows my mind. I would mm-hmm. never have thought about that, but now I can promise <laughs> I you that I will, you know, we talk about girls and girls mm-hmm. being taken and girls being lured away, but, but is it an issue yeah. for boys as well? Or is this, No, it is, um, it is both. And actually, um, we've dealt with, which by the way, just, I want to say, I'm not currently volunteering. I have great relationships with all of these organizations, but with motherhood Mm -hmm. and career and all of those things, I'm taking a break, but with Mm -hmm. the time that I did spend there, um, the amount of cases, you know, boys, it is more challenging because, men and the male species in general tends to internalize things a lot more and not talk as much, you know? Right. And so it's harder. And also Mm -hmm. the methods used are very different. Girls, the female species, we tend to be a lot more emotional and um, driven by our Mm -hmm. emotions. And so we will run away from home and go into the arms of someone else, you know, whoever the first person is that shows us some sort of sympathy or whatever. With boys, the grooming looks different. Right. And just an example of, of what that is, um, I know, and my this hits home for me because I have a lot of nephews and they're all gamers. Like they love playing video games. Mm-hmm. And 
there was a, mm-hmm. a young boy, he was 13 years old and he was a gamer. This is a, a case that we had. And when he was gaming, there was someone that he was gaming with. It was actually a woman who was on, who was gaming and she got to know him and convinced him to leave home and catch a flight out to where she was. I think she was in Ohio. And so thankfully, I mean, it, with the PIs, I mean, they're so skilled and so passionate. I mean, we were able to locate mm-hmm. in no time because, I mean, she bought a plane ticket, right? I'm like, come on, lady. Uh, which I'm glad right. that she was an idiot because we right. were able to locate her quick. But, yes. Um, but, you know, the yes. point is, yeah, like our boys and the the techniques that are used um, to lure them. And this is why there's so much shame built in around this because for instance, me, the shame that I felt because right. this was my friend, this is someone that I trusted. Right. How, you know, and this is just right. the thought, how stupid am I that I just was so easily manipulated into this. Right. And the same can go for it. Yeah. I mean, it goes yeah. for a lot of situations. We can all think of a situation in our life where we're like, Oh my gosh, I should have known better. I should have done this differently. I should have done that differently. Mm-hmm. And so all of the things mm-hmm. that go into that, you know, and talking about, especially our, our youth, when their brains are so underdeveloped being lured into that, there's so much. And, right. um, but yes, there are, and actually 80% of male abductions happen uh, with boys from 12 to 17 years old. And with females, it is going to say, you know, it is high like that for females. And especially when you talk about like cases deemed runaway, um, but the age of 12 right. to 15, just period, um, male or female, but yes, males, uh, it is happening and it is really the less detected thing. That's wild. So before we go, you know, you talked about when your kids are little, you know, being honest with them and real about their bodies and how they're changing. And what are, what are some practical things parents can do? Obviously knowing where your kids are, who they're with, or, you know, what else, what are some other suggestions for parents to just be aware of this kind of Mm -hmm. craziness out in the world? Oh man. Yeah. You know, I think that line of communication, I talked about the apps and having that putting, find your friends or whatever app it is that you can have on the cell phone so that you can always know where they are. Mm -hmm. And also like, listen, sometimes we've got to kick it old school and say, who's the parent of who you're going to hang out with? And uh, because I can remember, gosh, I spent all my time at the skating rink lock-ins I mean it was always so fun and we want our yeah. kids and we should let our kids do things like that so there's such a, a balance to be had but when it comes to our teenagers and uh, you know we really have to we have to make them aware of the realities without them feeling like we're just trying to scare them and that's such a hard balance especially with yeah. teenagers It really is. My biggest kind of like tips really are around having the find your friends thing or whatever app on monitoring their cell Mm -hmm. phone time. And as your kids get older, like those conversations have to be ongoing. Mm -hmm. It can't just be a one time conversation, but 
that communication right. has to be a thing that is maintained and open so that they always feel like they can talk about things. Um, and so that is, that it's so important. It is. It's very important. I, I, one thing that I learned and I, you know, this wasn't, I'm sure this was an issue when my daughter was a teenager. It just wasn't talked about as much. One thing that I had to learn with her and with all my kids really, but was to not react when they would tell me something crazy, have a straight face and listen and, you know, comment a little bit. And I could totally mm-hmm. freak out when they walked away, but I knew if I freaked out when they told me they weren't yes. going to tell me anything anymore. And I wanted to know what was going on. Yes. Being kind of quick to listen and still slow to respond is that is such a hard thing to mm-hmm. learn and do, but it makes such a big impact on, on them. Cause I, I mean, yeah. And, and I really try that with my kids even is they always come to me. I mean, and they're young now. So they're like, mom, so-and-so did this and blah, right. blah, 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 going on and on. It's like full on, like, I don't want to say tattle mode, but that's what they're doing. And so even at that age, taking right. a step and being like, right. okay, and not being reactionary. And it all just leads up to ultimately like yeah. having them be able to tell you stuff later I am so thankful that you talked to me today and shared your story. I think it's going to be eye-opening for a lot of people. You know, I just think this is such an important topic and it's not talked Mm -hmm. about enough. It's just Mm -hmm. so very foreign to me because Mm -hmm. we think it's somewhere else, you know, and obviously it's not, it's right here in our backyard. Absolutely. So thank you very much for sharing. Well, thanks for having me on.